This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. My name is John Bourgeois. I'm the campus minister with RUF here at Wake Forest. Um, and so I'm the pastor that's been sent to campus um, to, to be here with y'all. And so what we do during this time on Tuesday nights, it's your first time here, um, we sing, which we obviously just did. And then um, I'm going to take some time. We're going to read some scripture together and uh, take some time to think about it together. Um, so uh, freshmen, new students, I speak not just for myself, but everyone here, welcome. We're so glad that y'all are here. We're so glad you're at Wake. Um, yes, we can clap for them. We really do hope you find a home, a, a, a spiritual home while you're at Wake Forest. We hope it's RUF or if it's somewhere else, we hope it's there too. But know that um, we are here for you and helping you get connected and finding your place here. And if you're new to RUF or like you're here and you got dragged here by a friend and you're like, what in the world am I doing in this room full of Christians? We just said you're beautiful to like a guy, I think. You're not really sure what's going on. Um, we're really glad you're here too. And we hope that you'll take the time to consider the claims of Christianity while you're in college. Um, we, uh, in RUF, we're, RUF, we're convinced that, that Jesus is um, beautiful and believable and worth uh, our lives. And we're willing, we're willing to say that. And so we invite you to come and check that out. Why would we say that about a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to open the Bible and read together. And this semester, we're going to be reading the Gospel of Mark together. This is, um, the Gospels are these four books at the beginning of the New Testament of the Bible. So it was written um, in the first century, and it was written to the church, and Mark was written to the ter- church in Rome. And so we're going to start this morning by reading, or this evening, um, by reading Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. 9 through 15. 9 through 15. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him into the, out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this passage together tonight, I want us to see three things. Um, What we're going to look at is we're going to see the pattern of God's power. How is it that God uses his power in our lives? And my three points for tonight, if you're taking notes, are that his power gives you an identity that you cannot achieve. His power is made perfect in your weakness, and his power is received by repentance and faith. So first, um, his power gives you an identity that you cannot achieve. So I want to set the, the scene for us a little bit here to see where are we, what's going on. I want you to try to imagine with me that you are living in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Um, it's hot and dry. 
I'm assuming that's what it was like 2,000 years ago. You're, living, you're outside the city of Jerusalem on the banks of the Jordan River. You're surrounded by a huge crowd of people, smelly, noisy, dusty, and the crowd is pushing and jockeying for position as everyone's trying to get a glimpse of this man that people call the baptizer. It seems that everyone in Jerusalem is, has come out to be baptized by this man, John. And so you're in the crowd, and you're waiting your turn in line to go down to the river and be baptized by him. And you were out here a week ago, too, just watching, and you heard John mention that there was the one who was coming, this one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit instead of water. And today, as you wait your turn in this crowd to be baptized, you see John look up from his work and look over, and um, he, he sees a man walking towards him, and he begins to sing, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone in the crowd's heads turn. The guy he's baptizing, he gets out of the water, turns and looks. He looks where John is looking. And you turn, you see this man coming you've never seen before. You learn his name is Jesus. And he comes forward and he asks John to baptize him. And John says, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus says, and this is recorded in the other gospels, the other stories in the Bible, books in the Bible that tell this story. He says, John, this needs to be done. And so John baptizes Jesus. And he comes up out of the water and we read, immediately he sees the heavens open, the spirit descends on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven speaks or sings and says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The heavens open, a spirit descends, the spirit descends, and a voice sings out the song of love. So what's going on here? Well, first, the open heavens. Um, Heaven in the Bible means the invisible reality of God's dimension behind ordinary reality. It's more like there's this invisible curtain around us at all times, right in front of us, and then suddenly it's pulled back. So instead of walls and building and trees, or in Jesus' case, the river and the desert and the crowds, instead we're standing in the presence of a different reality altogether. Here's, here's what this is saying. It's saying that when Jesus comes up out of the water of his baptism, he's given a vision of reality as it actually is the spiritual reality behind everything we see. And as we read Mark together this semester, the way that he's written his gospel, what we'll see together is that when we look at the whole life of Jesus, this is what we're being shown, reality as it actually is. Mark is saying, look at this story, look at Jesus and learn to see and hear him as he actually is. So then we're told that Jesus sees the spirit descend on him like a dove. What, what is going on here? Um, in Genesis 8, which is at the beginning of the Bible, we're told that God wiped out the world with a flood and he saved a few people and a bunch of animals through Noah and his ark. And once the rain stopped and the flood started to subside, Noah sent out a dove to see if the dove would find dry land. The dove came back the first time. He waited a few days. He sent the dove out again. And the dove didn't come back. And he knew then that the flood was over and they were at a new beginning of the world. So this dove spirit is a reminder of the way God's judgment came to an end when Noah's dove found a new place to rest. So here it symbolizes the beginning of God's new creation. Here's what this means. Jesus is the one in whom God is beginning something new. And then we have the voice of heaven. And in this voice, we're told three things about who Jesus is through this voice singing out from heaven. We're told he's the son of God, meaning that he is the king of God's kingdom that he is much loved, much loved by the Father. He has a unique relationship with God the Father. 
And he is the one who has come to suffer for the sins of the world. He is the servant promised long ago who would be wounded and bruised and chastised for others. The whole of Jesus's own understanding of his work and his ministry is summarized in these three statements. So what's going on here? Let's pull back. I mean, if you're honest, if you're not a Christian, um, we're glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian, you're listening in. This is, this is really weird. You've got this unknown Jewish guy getting a bath in a river. Then he's shown the upside down. And then he's told that he's God's special person who's going to face a life of suffering. So what is, what is this? What is going on here? Jesus is being told. He's hearing the thing that all of us, all of us long to hear at the deepest level of our souls that we long to hear. I love you and there is nothing you can do to change that. And this, this is the pattern of God's power. And the Bible is explicit about this, that what is true for Jesus is true for you by faith. Friends, the world has no shortage of bad dads and insecure children. And those of us with good dads still long to hear this voice from the God who made us. The voice that declares its un- his unconditional and invincible love for you. And it's yours and Jesus. But how? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't deserve to hear a voice like this say these things to us. And when we hear something like this, our response is, like, don't you know what I've done? What I've thought? who I am, how could this word of God's love and approval actually be true for me? Jesus, the answer is Jesus. Jesus came into the world to be the savior of sinners. And I don't want you to miss this. He shows us here how he saves us. By standing in the river whose waters had symbolically washed away the sins of the repentant Jews who wanted to be baptized. This is what he's doing. He's standing with them. See, you and I, I think most of the time we don't think we're that bad. We don't, we don't have a full awareness of just how grotesque our sin is. I think um, often the way that we think of our sin is the way that in Anchorman, Paul Rudd thinks he smelled when he put on the Sex Panther cologne. So if you don't know this movie, uh, there's a scene, Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, they're in Paul Rudd's office and they're talking about hitting on the new anger woman. And Rudd says he's got this cologne that's going to make her fall for him. Side note, fellas, don't do this, ever. Um, if you want a girl to like you, spend time with her. Um, this, is, this is totally aside from the sermon. Spend time with her, uh, be kind to her, listen to her, be interested in her, ask her out, and chill out. You got four years. Don't date anyone until your sophomore year. Okay, back to Anchorman. Back to Anchorman. So, Will Ferrell says... Will Ferrell says to Paul Rudd, guys, this is really important. So, just kidding. Um, Will Ferrell says to Paul Rudd, you never cease to amaze me. What cologne will you go with? London gentleman, Blackbeard's delight. I got to watch this scene again today. It's so good. And Rudd replies, no, she gets a special cologne. It's called Sex Panther by Odeon. It's illegal in nine countries, yet made with bits of real panther, so you know it's good. You know, and Ferrell, if you guys remember the scene, he replies like, oh, it's quite pungent. It's formidable. Uh, stings the nostrils. Good idea. Smells like gasoline. And Rudd says, they've done studies, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. So then what he does is he, he walks out, Paul Rudd walks out onto the, um, the like office floor of the, of the newsroom and he starts hitting on this new anchor woman and she responds just like disgusted. Oh, what is that smell? 
And Rudd says, that's the smell of desire, my lady. And she says, no, it smells like a used diaper. And, and then people just start saying, what is that? What is that smell? And they go on to name the most disgusting things they can imagine. All the while, Paul Rudd's defending himself. He's like, no, I smell good. Like, this smells really good. Real panther, guys. This smells really good. People are running to the bathroom screaming. They're gagging. The fire alarm goes off and the scene ends with him out back of the office getting hosed off with a power washer and scrubbed with a huge brush. And the the cleaning guys say, this is worse than the time the raccoon got in the copier. So here's the point. We don't think our sin is that bad. But our sin and our pride is putrid in the nostrils of God. Y'all, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. We do. And Jesus allowed that water, that putrid, polluted water by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. He took all of it, every last bit of it, so that by faith, that voice from heaven can be yours. He entered into the waters of baptism to stand shoulder to shoulder with every person in the entire human race. He lived the life that you should have lived and he died the death that you deserve. So that this word from God to you this declaration of your belovedness and your loveliness would have the full weight of heaven behind it. The identity you long for and crave to be named loved and accepted, Jesus achieved for you. So what does that mean for us? So in RUF, um, we strive to be a community who is learning to rest in this identity together. That our truest identity is something we receive, not something we achieve. That the truest thing about us is that the God who made us actually enjoys us. That we are beloved by God in Christ. We are growing. We're a community that's growing together to be able to say, cheer up. You are far more sinful than you could ever imagine. But in Christ, you are far more loved than you ever dare hope. Mark tells us that immediately after Jesus is baptized, he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. God declares him beloved and then sends him out to be tempted by the devil, surrounded by hungry wild beasts and starved for 40 days in the woods. I think this is often how life feels. Like just when things feel good, all of a sudden we're lost in the woods. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening in, I bet this all sounds really strange. This weird communal bath followed by this strange, scary camping trip. What is going on here? So Western society and American culture is designed to eliminate suffering. And as we all know, all of that has fallen apart in the past 18 months. We literally do everything possible to build a life that is free from suffering. So much of our money and our creativity and our ingenuity and our time and our effort and our desire and our desire is aimed at our own comfort. Like this is why you create the perfect outfit because it broadcasts to yourself and to the world that you've arrived, that there's no more suffering. This is why you kill yourself in the gym, on the treadmill or with the weights, to project the illusion to yourself and to anyone who's looking that you're impervious to suffering. This is why you perfectly curate your social media image and your resume and your friend group, and even the stickers on the back of your laptop. All of it comes from the same desire, the desire to be above and beyond suffering. This is why the world's richest men are taking private flights to space and why Elon Musk wants to colonize Mars, to live a life free of suffering. All of it, from your sticker collection to Jeff Bezos' spaceship, all of it are our thinly veiled attempts to convince ourselves that we can perform our way out of our suffering. So let me get some water. Um, 
before we moved to Winston-Salem, Mary Clark and I lived in Richmond. We lived in the city. And a, a few blocks from our house, there was this, this great thrift store called Fantastic Thrift. And um, it was in the fan, so it was a pun. Fantastic, great thrift store. So our next-door neighbor uh, drove a truck for them, drove a, a pickup truck for them. And I remember one day I asked him, um, I was just curious. I said, how do you get people to donate to a for-profit thrift store? Um, like, how are they, why do they give to you and not to Goodwill or the Salvation Army? Like, those are tax write-offs. Those help people. You're a for-profit thrift store. How do you do this? And then he showed me the side of his truck. And so the side of his truck, it's like a, a moving van. And on the side, it said, um, it said donations. And then it had the phone number. And then it had this sign that had hinges and a latch. And so it could have one thing written on one side of the sign, and you could, you could pivot it around, and it could lock it in place, and there's something on the other side of the sign, so you could change what the sign said. And one side of the sign said fantastic thrift, and the other side said goodwill. I know, right? So what his boss told him to do was to drive around town, they'd get call for donations, he'd have the goodwill sign on, he'd, he'd pick up stuff, and then he'd pull into an alley near the thrift store. I'm totally outing this business right now. It's totally shady. Um, <laughs> Uh, go into the alley, flip the sign back, and pull into the parking lot where it said Fantastic Thrift on the side. All right. I know. It's so shady. Um, so shady. All right. Guys, if we're honest, if we're honest, I think that's often how we feel when we experience the wilderness, when we feel lost in the woods. We think, God, this was supposed to be easy. I'm not, I believe in you. I'm not supposed to suffer. Or that person I love was not supposed to die. Or why do I struggle with anxiety or depression? Or why do I feel like I have to control my eating or watch porn to stay sane? Or why do I have to drink to fall asleep each night? Or why do I continue to give myself away sexually to people expecting fulfillment but always wake up feeling like trash the next morning? Why do I have these desires that I don't want and can't get rid of? My guess is that you showed up to Wake Forest, beautiful Wake Forest, and expected this place to be wilderness-free. But instead, you've discovered that you're lost in the woods. And this is an incredibly destabilizing transition for you. You've lost. You've left your family and your friends and your hometown, and you're here alone. And in all all of our wildernesses, it feels like God has abandoned us. It feels like a switcheroo. It feels like God promised the goodwill truck was coming, but actually it was the fantastic thrift store robbing you to make money. So why does he do this? Like, why does he send us into the wilderness? Here's what I think he's doing. God leads us into the wilderness where it feels like he's abandoned us because God actually knows what's best for us. And in the wilderness, the angels are ministering to you. Here's what theologian Kyle Strobel says about this. He says, if you have a misguided view of God's power, you will interpret his wilderness work as abandonment. Just as the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, God leads you into your weakness so that you can experience his power. If you have a bad theology of power, you will see his guidance as abandonment. So a question you need to ask yourselves Do you experience or do you interpret God sending you into temptation as him working to reveal his power in your weakness? Or is it a sign of his abandonment of you? The Apostle Paul is a supreme example of this. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, which is a letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth in the first century. 
He tells him that he was caught up in the third heaven. So he has this amazing vision of God. He beholds God face to face, the vision of the living God. And then he, like, just think, how many of us have prayed, God, if you would just show me yourself, then I'd trust you. Everything would be okay. So Paul has this experience. But what's fascinating about this vision is that it doesn't change him. It doesn't shape his character. So God gives him a second experience. This is what Paul says. He calls it a gift. And this is what he says. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, Paul receives this gift, this messenger from Satan. God says, this will keep you humble. You need this thorn. Paul responds to God, take it away. God says no. Paul again, take it away. God says no. Third time, Lord, take it away. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. I think if this, if this had happened to most of us, we would say, God, why have you left me? And he would say, no, I haven't left you. I'm right here with, the, with you. I'm doing this. John Owen, who was a theologian many years ago and pastor, he reflected on this. And he said, people reflect on this passage and they say, God, take the sin away from me. Take it away. Take it away from me. And there's God sitting there looking down on this person and saying, if I took the sin away from you, you would never come to me again. Why should I give you freedom? You haven't learned how to abide yet. The Lord has told us that he is guiding us into dependence on him, guiding us to abide, guiding us to know his power in our weakness. I mean, think about how you pray. If God answered your prayers, would that be good for your prayer life? For many of us, that would be terrible if God answered our prayers. Because if, if he answered our prayers the way that we, he, we wanted him to, that'd be terrible. Because then we'd just stop praying because we got what we wanted. We don't understand how God uses power because we interpret it as abandonment. When Jesus was sent into the wilderness, he was doing something necessary for you and for your salvation. Jesus Christ came into the world to be the last Adam. He came to undo what Adam, who was the first man what Adam had done and ruined by his sin and fall. But if he was to reverse what Adam had done, he needed to enter the world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. Not as Adam found it, but as he left it, like a Motley Crue hotel room. So when Jesus was tempted, he wasn't in a garden like Adam. He was not like Adam surrounded by animals that he had dominion over with and he had dominion over and snuggled with. He was in a desert surrounded by wild animals. It was in a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrating world that Jesus faced temptation in the powers of darkness in order to win for his people a way back to the tree of life. So what does this mean for RUF? Well, at RUF, we want to be a community that is honest about our experiences of the wilderness. A community where you can exhale and be honest about your temptations and sins and your exhaustion and your doubt and your fear and your anxiety and learn together that we together can learn to trust Jesus and the spirit with what he's doing in your life. One of the problems with with our spiritual immaturity is that we think that the Christian life is predicated on our action. 
Here's what I mean. We think that God acts in response to us. So you come to RUF, you get excited. You go to church, you get excited. You sing songs, you get excited. And by repetition, we learn in our naivete that if I do spiritual things, I will feel spiritually full and grow. And so in our experience, our spiritual growth is connected to our actions. So just like Jesus, the Spirit sends us into the wilderness because Jesus wants to strip you of all of your good works, all of your Christian busyness and spiritual activity so that you can rest in his power and so that his power can be made perfect in your weakness. Most of you during your time at Wake Forest are going to be tempted to deconstruct your faith. As you study here, you're going to begin to question what you've heard growing up. And instead of thoughtfully questioning your doubts, you're going to start deconstructing everything. And this impulse to deconstruct your faith, the way that it's happening in our culture right now, it's thinking about power in the wrong way. This is what Mark is showing us. We're to give ourselves to Jesus, who then deconstructs power. If you follow Jesus, you will have plenty of deconstruction. That's just being faithful to him. If you want real deconstruction, if you want to see power overturned in the world, follow Jesus, the Lord who led his disciples to the cross. But if you do it yourself, it's just an agenda that leads to you calling to question everything you believe is true. And that's just sad and misguided. The deconstruction that Jesus offers is much more meaningful than that. If you do it yourself, you're just buying into the power system of James 3, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The way of Jesus is the counter system, which is power in our weakness for the sake of love. This is the way of truth. This is where life is found. So his power gives you an identity you cannot achieve. His power is made perfect in your weakness, and his power is received by repentance and faith. In this passage, Jesus begins in Galilee. He goes to the Jordan to be baptized. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then he returns to Galilee to preach the gospel of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is here now in me. Repent and believe in the good news of my kingdom. This is what he's saying. The life that you long for, that you were designed for, is found in the kingdom of the true king. And the Bible is explicit about this. Jesus is a conquering king and your only hope is found inside of him. Repentance is this old word that means changing your mind turning from yourself to God. And faith is an old word that means trust falling into the open arms of Jesus. Friends, the message of Christianity, the message of RUF, the message of the Bible is the same. Jesus invites you to turn around and to trust fall into his arms. And he will catch you and he will do more for you than you can possibly imagine. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to hear from your word. Thank you for showing us Jesus Um, Lord, thank you that he was baptized for us and went into the wilderness for us, tempted for us so that he could be the perfect sacrifice of sin for sin in our behalf to give us life and a name in your kingdom. Lord, I pray for my friends. Thank you for those who are struggling to believe this. Would you help them? Lord, we're all struggling. Help our unbelief. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.